0: Welcome to SOMA Northwest. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. And it's really easy to sing that and to sing and to talk about Jesus being the center. Um, As a church, it's really trendy uh, to talk about, well, Jesus is at the center of everything that we do. It's a lot harder to live in that reality. It's a lot harder to let everything that we do as a church The things that we spend our time and energy towards, the things that we spend money on. It's a lot harder to make Jesus the center of those things. Um, And we are not a um, a church that's better than any other church in this city. We are not a church that feels like that we've arrived and we finally figured out how church is supposed to be. But one of the things that we are committed to as a church, as a community of faith together, is that Jesus is our ruler. That we live life with God, with Jesus, under his righteous and good and just reign. And that those things aren't just things that we say. But those are realities that we live in. Even here on Sunday morning, if you picked up a worship guide on your way in, you'll see on uh, the inside cover, you'll see that like this is how we organize our services on Sunday morning. Everything that we do, the flow. I didn't grow up in a church that did this. I didn't grow up in a church. I, I, don't, I hadn't, before I came to Soma, experienced a liturgy, this kind of an order of service. But I've grown to love it over the years because every Sunday when we come in here and we walk through the doors, we are being reminded and we are proclaiming to one another the truths of the gospel the beauty of Jesus Christ that this is this gathering on Sunday morning isn't the sum total of what church is this isn't the pinnacle of our weeks As Christians, this is an opportunity for us to gather together after being scattered throughout the city during the week to gather together and remind ourselves of Jesus, to encourage one another with Jesus, to be uh, immersed in the scriptures and to bring us back to what truth is. So that then we can go back out from this place and scatter back out with Jesus being the center of our lives. And that's where it starts. For us to be a church that G, where Jesus is the center, it means that we as individuals need Jesus at the center of our lives. Um, again, in your worship guide on the on the inside cover, our prayer focus for this month, the month of June, has been spiritual renewal, where we are just praying that God's Spirit uh, through His Word, through our community, that He would do his work of transformation in our lives. And so as we prepare to dive into the scriptures together this morning, I just want to lead us in a prayer of spiritual renewal, a prayer asking God to continue this work in our lives individually so that we become a church that people in this city can look at and say, I know what God is like because I know people at Soma Church. I know who God is because I have relationship with people at Soma Church who are broken, who are messed up, who, as Deb said, carry a lot of bad decisions and bad choices week in and week out. but But people in whom God is at work and his grace and his mercy and the power of his spirit is transforming us. So would you pray with me and ask God to do this in our lives this morning? Lord Jesus, we come to you and we humbly acknowledge this morning that so many other things vie for our affection, so many other things vie for our attention, that it's so easy to get caught up in our own world, in our own life, the things that matter to us, and you become just a consultant. You stand on the outside of our lives and we go to you when we need you, we consult you when we have tough decisions to make week in and week out, we are at the center of our lives. We confess that this morning. We pray that you would give us the courage to renounce the idols in our lives that we love, that we give our time and our energy, our money, our affections to things that are good things even, but that have taken us off our eyes off of the giver of those good things. I pray that even this morning as we think about your word and and the story that your word tells us, that your word is truth, I pray that you would renew our minds this morning. I pray that you would confront lies that we are believing this morning, that you would confront doubts, and unbelief that we're wrestling with this morning. I pray that the truth of your word would illuminate the areas in our lives that we have not yet given over to you, that we still grasp control of. And Lord, I pray that we would truly come to understand and embrace that in trusting you, in following you, in living by what you define as good, we will truly experience life. And we pray that that would be true of us as a community. And we pray that as you are making that true in this place, that as we go out into this city, that you would use us to be people of peace, people of truth, people of love and mercy because of what you're doing in our lives. We pray that you'd open our hearts this morning to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are uh, continuing this week in our mini series on the practice of reading scripture. It's part of a larger series that we've been uh, and a larger focus of our church this year on spiritual formation. And I just want to remind you we have a lot of great resources on our website, somaindy.com. You can go to that website, you can click on the series tab at the top of the page, and you will find. Um, teachings that we're doing from all three congregations. You'll find uh, podcasts, blog posts. There's a spiritual formation plan there that you can take and adapt that will help you. uh, If you're like me, I need some discipline. I need some structure. Um, Sometimes I tend to be way too organic in the way that I approach uh, my spiritual formation. And so there's a spiritual formation plan that you can take and tailor that you can um, challenge yourself in, in some of these practices. But when we talk about spiritual formation, and I, I want to make sure that I say this every Sunday because it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to import our own ideas into what we think spiritual formation is. When we talk about spiritual formation, we are talking about the process by which God forms our whole person, not just what we deem to be the quote-unquote spiritual part of our person, but our whole person, our thoughts, our feelings, the choices that we make, the physical bodies that we have, the relationships that we are in with other people. It is the process by which God shapes and forms all of what makes us us into who he's created us to be, who he has intended us to be. That means that who we are, that what we believe about God, how we make sense of this world, and how we choose to live our life lines up with what God says is reality, his definition of reality. And that's what we talked about last week, that the definition of truth is reality. What is true is what is real, defined by God. And that is why the enemies of God, the spiritual forces that are arrayed against God, their primary method of attack, their primary method that they use to sidetrack, to discourage, to destroy our lives is to make us question. To put doubt, to make us concerned whether or not God's truth is real or not. Spiritual warfare is less about casting out demons or having some big spiritual experience. Spiritual warfare is the battle to believe truth over lies, the battle to believe truth over lies lies misinformation misinterpretation double standards that we have doubt confusion denial all of these are ways that all of us experience on a daily basis on a weekly basis they are part of our lives They are ways in which we are being pushed out of what God says is real and into a different version of reality a reality that maybe is of our own making, a reality that our culture says is real. All of these things are the attempts by the enemies of God to push us away from what God says is true. And that's why, if you remember, we talked about David Tackle's book last week, The Truth About Lies and the Lies About Truth. That's why Tackle, if you remember this, he said the devil has relatively real little real power in this world apart from the lies he can tell and the power released when we believe them the devil has very real little real power in this world apart from the lies and the deception that he can tell and the power that is released when we buy into those lies When we get taken in by that deception, Tackle also said the reason that evil is so strong in this world is because people are so greatly deceived. The reason that evil is so strong in this world, in our city, in our church, in our own lives is because we fail. We fail to understand how easily we can be deceived. That's why, in large part, the work that God desires to do is to get his truth in us so that he can transform us. To get his truth in us so he can transform us. And again, Jesus prayed this in John 17, verse 17. He prayed to his father on behalf of his disciples, and by extension, you and I, sanctify them, transform them by the truth your word is truth. We live within a reality that is defined by God, a reality that's made clear through the scriptures. The scriptures tell us the story of what is real. It is one book made up of an Old and a New Testament. It contains ancient history, it contains poetry, it contains letters that are written across a span of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors and writers. Despite that incredible diversity in genre genre and contributors, the Bible shows a remarkable unity, a remarkable unity within itself because the scriptures provide us a master narrative. One plot line weaving the different books and stories together into one big overarching story. And so this morning, we're not going to nerd out on the Bible. We're not going to get in, you know, we're not going to satisfy that for us this morning. Instead, what I want us to see together is that the scriptures are the true story of the world. Last week, we talked about the scriptures being the true Story of the world. And so this morning, I want us to see that it's the true story of the world. And I'm going to explain that here in a second. But the scriptures were written in specific times and places, but provide us with a unique vision for universal history, a coherent story of all things from beginning to end. And at the center of this story that we just sang is Jesus. Jesus is at the center of the story that the Bible tells us. Jesus, who came in the flesh to reveal God's purposes for this world and through whom those purposes are being carried out. The scriptures, as we are going to see, is a very different story than the story the world tells itself about itself. The scriptures are a very different story than what the world tells about itself. And what we need to understand this morning is this, and I'm borrowing this from a missionary to India named Leslie Nubigan. We cannot know ourselves. We cannot make sense of our story if we do not understand there's a bigger story we're a part of. You cannot know yourself. You cannot make sense of the story of your life unless you understand that you are a part of a bigger story, a bigger reality that is defined by God, and that's where we're going to end up today. So let me talk a little bit about how short stories shape us. Our understanding of human life is grounded in the stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell each other. Stories provide us with a framework for experiencing the world. Think about how you talk about your life. You talk about it in story form, don't you? You don't talk about it just using scientific facts, just bare information. Those things are helpful, they are useful, they are necessary but they only find significance within a larger context. I mean, we've all sat in history classes throughout the years, bored out of our skull, having to memorize dates and places and people and all of those things because they just seem stale. They seem detached from real life. But we love turning on a good documentary on Netflix. We love listening to a podcast about these same things in history because what do they do? They weave those dates and those, those people and those places, that information, those facts. They weave those within its larger story. And it makes sense. It takes shape. That's how we talk about life. That's how we live our lives. We talk about it as a coherent whole, not just a bunch of chopped up raw data. Those of us in this room who are of a certain age probably remember where you were on June 17th, 1994. When footage came on the TV of a white Bronco driving down a Los Angeles freeway, being chased by police. I was in the living room of the house I grew up in. I was watching the NBA Finals, the New York Knicks versus the Houston Rockets. Tom Brokaw came onto our screen and interrupted the NBA Finals to tell us that O.J. Simpson, NFL Hall of Famer, TV personality, movie star was in the back of that white bronco being chased by the Los Angeles Police Department. And what unfolded over the next year was the trial of the 20th century. Do you all remember this? I know some people are old enough in this room to remember that. One of the biggest stars at that time of that last quarter century stood trial for murdering his estranged wife and her lover. And what made this trial one of the most memorable in American history was everything that was involved in this trial. The race relations in Los Angeles at that time and in the decades before, the history of corruption in the LAPD, the Rodney King verdict that happened just a few years before, OJ's fame, his turbulent and abusive marriage, the all-star legal team that defended OJ, Detective Mark Furman's racism, and Johnny Cochran, you know, if, if, the, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Like, these are things that are cemented in our minds as Americans, because this was what was happening in our culture at the time. And all of these little stories, all of these little stories made up a bigger story that exposed how big the racial divide in this country really was in the 90s. It was a story that informed the country, how the country thought on racism, the criminal justice system, and the vastly different experiences of white and black Americans at that time. O.J. Simpson and his trial revealed a bigger framework for understanding our country and the differences that life, the, the differences of life between black and white Americans. And if you watched a few years ago, ESPN came out with a five-part documentary called OJ Made in America. And as you watch that, it becomes clear that many African Americans at that time saw OJ's story as their story. They saw what was happening to OJ as a bigger story, a bigger reality, their reality. It spoke of a master narrative that a black man is always presumed guilty, always at the mercy of cops, and never can truly get justice. And what makes that master narrative so convincing, sadly, is that it's been proven to be true over and over again. We all live, by a master narrative. We all live by a story that seeks to answer the big questions in our lives. Who are we? Where are we? What's the problem that we're facing? What's the solution to that problem? And our master narratives are less about what we explicitly and consciously believe and more about what we take for granted, what we assume to be true. I mean, think about another example. In our culture here in America, if you hear somebody say, you need to be true to yourself, that makes sense to us, right? I mean, that seems like good wisdom. That seems like common sense. We hear that all the time. It makes sense to us. But if you were to talk to a Japanese man or a Japanese woman and say the same thing to them, you need to be true to yourself, they would probably look at you and say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I be true to myself when I have a family, when I have a community? They are much more important to my life than being true to myself. But being true to ourselves as Americans it speaks of a bigger master narrative, a story that we all just unconsciously live by. It makes sense to us because we live in an individualistic culture that that glorifies autonomy, that the, the height and the pinnacle of our lives, the things that, that we are told, the thing that we are told to reach for above everything else is personal satisfaction, personal fulfillment. Being true to ourselves, that's the rugged individualism of America. That's our DNA. That's the master narrative of our culture. But it's different if you go to other cultures around the world. Here's the point. What is our master narrative? What is the story that you live your life by? When we talk about what is true, what's the framework? through which you decide what is true in your life? Your decisions, your relationships, your jobs, where you live, your education, all the things that matter to us. What is the story that informs those things? It is possible to have Christian beliefs and live by a totally different story. It's possible for us to have Christian beliefs and yet live our lives being controlled by a completely different story. To live within the biblical story is to live our lives with the answers to those questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's the problem here? And what is the solution to this problem? And so over the next few minutes, I want to walk us through that story. I want to walk us through what Scripture says, the truth, the reality that God has given us. And I want us to see this story take shape. And so I want you to hang with me here. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Uh, You don't have to turn to these passages as I'm reading them. But in each one of these um, plot twists that we encounter here, I want you to write down the scriptures and I want you to go back and I want you to look at these on your own because what we are going to see is that there is one thread that weaves all of this story together, all of the seeming random dates and times and places and weird cultural things and things that make no clue, that that make no sense to us as 21st century Americans, we are going to see that there is a thread that runs through. There is a story that connects all of these little ones. And we want to start at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see from the beginning that God steps into chaos. He steps into darkness and creates a beautifully ordered world full of life. And we read in Genesis 1 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground the pinnacle of God's creation. He makes man and woman, human beings in his image. And they are to be one flesh together, to represent him, to show his image, that beautiful unity within diversity. Not sameness, but to a man and a woman that are different coming together and showing the beautiful unity and diversity That God has with himself. And God commissions them with the task of multiplying and filling the earth. Multiplying and filling the earth with more image bearers. More people that represent who he is. And he tasks them with overseeing and ruling this world on his behalf. And God steps back and says that all that he has made is good. Because this was his intent for human beings to take care of this good world, to develop this world of potential that God had given them and to live in harmony with him and with each other. But as we looked at last week, we move into Genesis chapter 3. And humans are faced with the choice between good and evil, trusting God's wisdom, or grasping for their own autonomy, defining good and evil on their terms. And in this, a mysterious character enters the story. God's most powerful adversary comes to the human beings that God has created in his image, and he deceives and entices them to mistrust God. To doubt God's goodness, as Deb said, to see all the other trees in the garden that God had provided, and yet focus on the one that he said was off limits. And we read in Genesis chapter three, verses six and seven, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The consequences of their disobedience were disastrous, a fractured relationship with God and with others and with the earth. And from this point on, pride and violence reign. The curse of sin affects everything. And you know, God could have obliterated it all at this moment. He could have wiped everything out and started all brand new, created everything new again But in his mercy, he promises that redemption will come and that he will restore everything. And we read in Genesis 3.15, God curses the snake, his enemy, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. This is the first time in the scriptures that we see this promise that someone will come to defeat evil, to defeat the enemies of God. And this leads us a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 12. God begins to set in motion this plan to restore his blessing to every nation of the world, the whole world. And he does that by making a covenant with a man named Abraham and his family. And we read in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promises to bring Abraham's family into a land of their own where they will become the nation that God uses to bless all other nations of the world. But as the years go by and what we've been seeing here this year in the book of Exodus, Abraham's descendants become enslaved in Egypt, a land of injustice, a land of idolatry but god in his sovereignty and in his mercy raises up a man named moses and through moses he will he delivers his people and defeats Egypt. And in the aftermath, as we're going to see in a few weeks, as we jump back into Exodus, God renews this covenant with Israel. He will live personally with his people and they will obey his commands as his people. And as they do that, they will become priests to the nations. They will declare to all other nations on the earth the glory of the one true God. As they finally enter the promised land that God had promised Abraham, they blow it. And at the end of Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 21, verses 25, verse 25, we read, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. God's people began to worship other gods. God's people became corrupt, and they became unjust. They oppressed the most vulnerable in their midst. And God would raise up kings who he hoped would show his people his rulership, his righteous reign, his good reign. And we see glimpses of that, and we see that in King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12, the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, says this to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Skipping down to verse 15, my love will never be taken from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God raises up kings to show that his kingdom is good, that his kingdom is just, that he is the righteous king. But even their best kings, including David and then his son Solomon, they fail to live up to this. And gradually, God's people begin to move further and further away from God. They become the idolatrous and unjust nations like everyone else around them. And God, just like with Adam and Eve, removes his people from their land. He uses the other nations surrounding them to conquer them, to carry them off into exile, to discipline them for not loving him and serving him in the way that he desired. And you have to ask at this point, where is their hope for God's people? Because time and time again, they screw it up. Time and time again, God gives them chances to follow him, to serve him, to reject other gods, to, to reject other ways of life, and to follow him with all of their heart. And over and over and over again, they reject But in the midst of all of this, we see that there's a vocal minority. There are prophets speaking up throughout this dark and turbulent time. Prophets who speak to God's people on his behalf, warning Israel of God's judgment and his discipline, yet also looking forward in hope to God's promised redemption and restoration, the thing that he has been promising since the beginning. Prophets like Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 6, that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all, that someday there will be someone who will take our sin, who will take our sin, who will take our iniquity. Ezekiel in chapter 37 verses 3 through 5 sees this vision of a valley that's full of just dead, uh, just carcasses and dry bones just laying everywhere. And God asks him in this vision, son of man, can these bones live? And he says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And God said to him, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Sound familiar? That creating, that recreating, God is promising to Resurrect and to recreate his people. And Isaiah again, in Isaiah sixty-five seventeen, God says to his people, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. God is promising his people all that you experience, all your reality, all of the sin, all of the death, all of the crud of this world that is marred by evil, one day that's not going to be. But as the storyline of the Old Testament ends, these tensions are still unresolved. God's people are still picking up the pieces. God's people are still experiencing other kingdoms and nations coming in and conquering them and ruling over them. These prophets spoke words of hope. That God would live among his people again. That God would bless the nations of the world through him. But they're still waiting. When will God do this? How will he do this? And for 400 years, God is silent. God is silent and his people wait. Enter Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Listen to what Old Testament scholar Tim Mackey writes about the Gospels. The Gospels in the New Testament present Jesus as the resolution to all the conflict of the Old Testament. They claimed that he was the very love of God become human and the embodiment of divine mercy. They claimed that Jesus was the kind of human we were all made to be but perpetually failed to be. Furthermore, they claimed that Jesus was the faithful Israelite who would fulfill God's promise to return divine blessing to all the nations through Abraham. That Jesus stands at the center of this story as being the centerpiece, as being God's solution to all of the things that have happened so far, God's promise, his answer to all of the things that his people have looked forward to. And that's why Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, preaching and announcing, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that life with God under the rule of God is available now. That Jesus, in his teaching and in his very life, came not as a king, not as a general, but remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 as a servant. Jesus talks about that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would display what life with God under the rule of God was really supposed to be. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a good example because Jesus came to confront sin, to confront death. He was God in the flesh. And he would defeat sin and defeat death through his own death and through his own resurrection. And he would give life to all those who would put their faith in him. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after he has risen from the dead, gathers his disciples together and he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And that's what we see as we enter into the book of Acts and all of the letters in the New Testament is that God sends His Spirit, His power, and His presence to be with them and to be in them, to go out as witnesses, empowered by God, to share this good news that life with God, under the rule of God, is available to all mankind. And the Holy Spirit. Through, or excuse me, Jesus appeared to his friends multiple times in the flesh, and he sent them out with this mission and this Jesus movement that began to multiply and to spread became a multi-ethnic, international movement across the the known world at that time. It flourished, especially among communities of poor and marginalized people. Listen to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves, speaking of the church, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All believers together had. and generosity. They were communities that were marked by gathering together regularly to celebrate and to remind each other, just like we do here, of this new way of life. They ate together, they worshiped together, they lived life with God together. A large part of the New Testament is made up of these letters to these churches, written by apostles, leaders appointed by Jesus. And these letters were to encourage and challenge and to instruct these people to participate in the kingdom of God in their first century world. The entire New Testament presents Jesus as the only hope, the only way forward for all humanity. His followers, including us, continue to look forward to the day when he will finish what he started, conquering evil. Conquering death once and for all and fully establishing his rule and reign on the earth. And as the scriptures, the story of the scriptures come to a close, that's what we see. Jesus confronting the powers and the forces of his enemies, removing them from this world and making all things new again. And those from all history who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord will be welcomed into this new world. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, John says in his vision, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And life will be as God intended it to be forever and ever and ever. Human beings living in perfect harmony with each other and with God and taking care and ruling over the beautiful and good world that God has made for us. And the book of Revelation comes to a close in chapter 21 with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. We see this come back full circle. What God had intended this world to be, God will make it to be in the end. And that is what we will experience forever and ever and ever. This is the master narrative of God. This is the story of God, the thread of creation Fall, redemption, restoration. We see it over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. And we live in that today. We live within this story. Knowing the Bible isn't simply about putting information in our heads. Knowing the Bible is for transformation when we step back to look at this master story that God has written, the reality that we live in, the big picture that we're a part of, we see it pointing to one thing, God's glory in Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And when we read all of these different smaller stories of Scripture, we read them in light of the bigger story of Jesus Christ. And that's what we try to do here on Sunday morning in our teaching each Sunday as we try to connect everything back to this big story. Where does this fit? How do we see Jesus here? How do we see what God is doing and his plan from the beginning of time to bring all things under Jesus Christ and to give him glory? Because knowing God through Jesus and being transformed in the image of Jesus through the Spirit is the point of the Christian life. That's what we're here for. That's what we're a part of. That's what we're committed to. Living within this story for us this morning is to see Jesus in the scriptures, which is used by the Spirit to make us like Jesus. When we see Jesus in the scriptures, the Spirit begins to transform us into the image of Jesus the men and women that God created us to be. I know that was a lot, and I know that took a lot of time, and that was a a 30,000-foot flyover. But it's important for us to know this story because everything in our lives happens in this context. Everything that we make sense of in this reality that we are living in points to this bigger reality that God has given us. And so every time we open the scriptures, every time we crack open our Bible, we can know where we're at. We can know what God is doing. We can see how God is moving. And we can know that even though this was a book that was written thousands of years ago in a different place, in a different time, with a different language, that we are a part of this story that God has written. That this is where our lives make sense. This is the truth that God has given us. And so I want to invite us as a community, as we dig in the scriptures together, that we would not just do it to know it. That we would not just do it to gain information. That we would not just do it to um, uh, have some kind of uh, uh, spiritual experience, but that we would do it with the understanding that as we read the scriptures, that God is getting his truth in us so that he can transform us. As we come to our bread and our juice this morning, we do this as a reminder of the story. We do this every Sunday for a reason, because we need to remember and we need to proclaim to each other that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ is coming back again. That is what gives shape to our lives. That's what helps us make sense of this world that we're living in. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I encourage you to come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice to remember Jesus And to proclaim it, not only to yourselves, but as we do it together, we are proclaiming him until he comes back. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of your word. Thank you for how it's beautifully written and yet how it points so simply to you. That you are the author and Lord Jesus, you are the center of this story. I pray that we would be a community of people that is marked, characterized by the truth of this story. That we will make sense of our lives, of this city that we live in, the world and the age that we're a part of, by the story that you have given us. I pray that we would not try to write our own stories and define our own reality, God, but we would trust that what you say is true and that you are good. I pray over the next few minutes that you would do the work that you need to do in our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.